Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program. I live in Southern California, Los Angeles. This is Baja Norte. If you do not speak Spanish in Los Angeles, you're missing out on a whole lot. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. And for a very limited time, LeVar Burton Reed's listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash LeVar. That's rosettastone.com slash L-E-V-A-R. Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream is a total chocolate game changer. We start with unbelievably creamy dark chocolate ice cream. Then we add different chocolate treats like chocolate cookies, chocolate cake, or chocolate brownies to make four decadent chocolate flavors. Because sometimes the thing that pairs best with chocolate <laughs> is more chocolate. Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream. Extraordinary Dairy. Hi, I'm LeVar Burton, and this is LeVar Burton Reads. In every episode, I handpick a different piece of short fiction, and I read it to you. The only thing these stories have in common is that I love them, and I hope you will, too. Well, y'all, I find myself coming back again and again to stories about artificial intelligence and our relationship to it. Today's story fits squarely in that category. It's by the writer and Hugo Award-nominated editor, Breit E.B. Vida, and was first published in Uncanny Magazine, issue number 37. Now, Breit is originally from Singapore, and she now lives in Brooklyn, where she's an editor for Orbit Books. Our main character in today's story is Ayara, and she is a retired military pilot years removed from battle. She used to have her own smart ship, and it was equipped with an experimental artificial intelligence. Now, the AI wasn't supposed to act independently of humans. Never is. It was meant to simply assist them, to learn, assess, make suggestions, but not to run the show. But as the pilots worked with the ships, there were unintended consequences, and the AI ships were decommissioned and sunsetted. This story causes me to think about the nature of AI and how humanity gets mapped onto it. Our relationship with this technology is only going to grow deeper and deeper, and the issues that we will have to deal with are myriad. So, if you are ready, let's. Take that deep breath. <sighs> and begin. Words We Say Instead by Breet E.B. Vida. Ayara taps the military implant behind her ear, and low static greets her. 
It's been dead for years. A two-way line with only one connection. But the static is comforting, as if she's listening to the sound of space itself, empty with longing. Below her, the dealership is an orange-domed pimple on the otherwise placid blue world. Lights flash through the thin ozone, advertising, Cheap! Arturo 433 models used and new. Xanthian credits accepted. Out front, rusted-out Eagle 12s fester in the sunlight, a dime a dozen. And old tanker ships wait for a second chance at hauling ice across the galaxy. They keep the newer models under the dome, protected from the caustic atmosphere, sheltered from the ding and wear of wind and dust. The dolphin-like hulls of the new single-passenger skiffs are lined up perfectly, as if, given the right signal, they might all leap into the air at once and take off for the stars. Ayara lands her own skiff in the docking bay and enters the dealership. Immediately, a salesperson sidles up to her. Hot out there today, they say. She nods, glancing over the passenger ships. Always hot on Ebos, though, right? They laugh. (laughs) Sure is, Mix. They pause to let her fill in the blanks. Ms. Ayara. And you can call me Jed. He is fine. He smiles at her and she notices that all his teeth are perfectly straight and a trendy pearlescent blue. Flashy orthodontia is a good sign. Only the sleazy ones have what she's looking for. Thanks, Jebd. So, what kind of thing are you interested in today, ma'am? We've got some really sporty new skiffs this season. No. No, I'm happy with what I have for puttering around. I was actually thinking of something much bigger. Off-world. Visiting grandkids? She laughs, a short coughing sound edged with bitterness. Ayara's never thought of herself as old, and she's never liked children. In her mind's eyes, she's still 32 and ready for a dogfight. But the rest of the universe is more than happy to remind her she's got almost a century under her belt. Once your hair turns gray... It's harder for people to see you for who you really are. But maybe that's for the best. No, no, no spawn running around, just little old me trying to take one last spin around the galaxy. So, something long haul, but comfortable. Jeb smiles again and leads her around the lot, pointing at the different models, explaining their features. This one is sturdier and better for the belt. That one's faster. This one's cheaper. That one's got cup holders, blah, blah. It doesn't matter. Nothing she can see is what she's here for. It's all just an elaborate song and dance she has to go through before he'll take her seriously enough to show her the good stuff. That's fine. She's learned to wait.
She'd been on the list for a smart ship for almost four years before they gave her command of one. Even before that, though, her recruitment class had spent five years doing flight simulations, taking personality tests, stress tests, neurocompatibility tests, intelligence tests, reflex tests. Two years of ferrying Marines between drop zones, two years of command training, and then another year of testing for God knew what else. Seventy recruits had winnowed down to twenty by the time it was all over. But damn, was it worth it. When she first saw Ziggy, she'd cried, an act her fellow trainee, Bilal, had been quick to tease her for until they'd been assigned their own ship. In the end, they all cried. It couldn't be helped. With so much anticipation, so much invested and sacrificed, so many invasive medical procedures, so much intensive training, and so much painful, racking hope. How could they not? Zig was beautiful, sleeker than anything she'd seen before or since. Lightning fast and responsive as hell, neuromapped to her brain, the SSV Zagreb didn't just follow her commands. He predicted them, suggested them, felt them. The rattling of his hull was a shiver of anticipation. The whistle of his struts through the atmosphere was a whoop of joy. Her boy was smarter and stronger than any other ship in the fleet. We've got a problem, Captain, he chirped, seeing the flash of an enemy ship on the horizon. What do we do with problem, Zig? She'd shout back a call and response leading him through oncoming fire or through an asteroid belt or around a security detail. Blast them! Nothing beat Zig. Ayara smiles, remembering the way his lights rippled at the end of particularly daring maneuvers, so pleased with himself for pulling it off. Did we do good? He'd ask, seeking reinforcement for his budding neural pathways. Smart ships were made to learn, after all. Very good. The absence of Jeb's droning voice pulls her back to the present, and she realizes he's waiting for a response. Sorry. What? The chip they implanted to let her interface with Zig more directly is old, but still powerful enough to mess with her hearing every once in a while. No problem. My gran is the same way. Can't hear a thing. I was asking if anything we've passed so far was speaking to you. Anything calling your name? She looks around the lot again, but already knows the answer. I was actually wondering if you had anything a little smarter. What? You know. Smarter. Space can be lonely for an old lady like me, and... I'd love something to talk to. She emphasizes the words carefully. After the war, as part of the de-armament agreement, the smart ships were all supposed to be decommissioned. Jebd looks confused, his bright teeth hidden for just a moment behind thin lips, and Ayara wonders if maybe she's met another dead end. 
There are dealerships like this all across the galaxy, and at least half of the ones she's visited hadn't known what she was talking about. AI Level 3 comes standard in all our models, but if you'd like to upgrade any of them to a 4 or 5, that could be arranged. She snorts. The problem with AI nowadays is that it's static. Stock personalities railroaded between lines of rigid code. AI can't ask why. Can't figure out how to cheer you up after a long day. Can't be brave or sweet or scared or loyal. They can't make up games or have favorite lullabies or imagine futures where you both are safe and happy and together forever. Jeb senses her disinterest and immediately changes tack. Oh, you mean something really smart. He says it as if trying out a key in a lock, testing that their frequencies are calibrated. She nods and carefully taps her lapel, where if he looks for more than half a second, he'll see her old wings, polished and safely pinned. Normal military issue, except for the glitter of gold in the center, marking her for special ops. She's not proud, but if he recognizes it, then he's more likely to entertain her requests. Surely you've got something like that here for me? The grin is already spreading across his face again. Maybe we can help you out, just not here. They arranged to meet the next morning at a chop shop further north, and on the sail back to her hotel, she can't help but get excited. It's foolish to hope after so long. There have been so many false leads and nothing promises, and besides, she doesn't deserve hope after what happened. But it's there, nonetheless. That night, she dreams of little ships calling to her from far dark places, and she wakes up in a cold sweat. Even before the war had ended, people argued that the smart ships were too great a threat. They were war machines, uploaded with 3,000 years of battle history and guns the size of horses. Of course they were a threat. But the ships could be dangerous in other ways, too. Some were immature blindly loyal, or emotionally unstable. Just because they understood things didn't mean they knew what to do with the information. Bilal always said it was as if someone had taken a puppy, augmented its intelligence by a million overnight, and then expected it to not still pee on the rug. Years of training had taught the captains to deal with these issues with detachment and forced overrides, to teach their ships strict boundaries and how to keep on task. But the secured chat line between them was still full of questions. What do I do when it doesn't want to go into dry dock? Whenever I use the overrides, my ship starts to pout. Is that a thing? How do you all deal with it? I think Lynn's afraid of dying. Bilal told her a few years into the war, their voice hushed and hurried, barely audible over the bar's thumping music. How do you know? 
I've never had to use the overrides before, but this time, over Gardam, he just refused to go. That doesn't necessarily mean he's my ship, Ayara. I can tell. Risk was within acceptable limits. No red flags in his memory logs. Just one second we were roaring, and the next, we'd stopped. They both sat in silence, contemplating the weight of the revelation. And for the moment, she was grateful Ziggy didn't seem to have the same problems as the other smart ships. He was brave and obedient. Didn't ask questions, except how far and how fast. And could we watch another movie before we go on our next run? The one with the ship that looks like me? What are you going to do? You have to report this, she said finally. Any deviation was dangerous. That's what they'd been taught. I think I'm just going to see how it goes with these overrides. And I don't know. If it were one of my soldiers, I'd know how to handle it. Therapy, shore leave. But instead, he's a... She interrupted before they could finish the thought. A very dangerous ship. Bilal sighed. (sighs) Yeah, except they're not just ships, though, are they? Feel like you got enough to do already? I do. That's why I use Ship Same Day Delivery to keep up with my busy life. They know the snacks I like down to the extra creamy in my peanut butter. I can get deliveries at home, on set, or even when I'm away on vacay. And my personal shopper, Amber, she's got my back. As in, she asks them to check the back if it's not on the shelf. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at ship.com slash hi. For over 130 years... McCormick has helped you make mom's lasagna to keep her secret recipe alive. Take over taco night. No matter how chaotic your day is. Conquer the bake sale. Even if you get to it last minute. And craft the perfect Sunday brunch when it's not even Sunday. Because with McCormick by your side, it's going to be great. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. 
Now, let's get back to our story. Jebd is waiting for her when she arrives. The dome of the chop shop is smaller than the dealership had been, and blue instead of orange to blend in with the planet's surface. She actually misses it the first time around and has to loop back, tapping her IPS and cursing before it finally reveals itself. Jebd isn't alone, either. Two armed guards accompany him, guns strapped to their waists. Sorry for the precautions, but, well, you understand. She nods to the guards who nod back with a military sort of seriousness. She does understand. Or she did once. You needed to protect special things. And sometimes protection looked like violence. Sometimes safety looked like betrayal. Sometimes love looked like lies. Jebd walks her through a cavernous warehouse. Large ship parts lined up on rows of floor-to-ceiling shelving maintained by efficient little warehouse droids. Small and dumb, but strong. They shuffle between stacks, fulfilled by the constant flow of simple, necessary work. Level 1 AI, if anything at all. As she looks closer she begins to better understand the facility she's in, the reason for the guards, and the annoying bit of camouflage. Not just ship parts, but jump drives from R-class personnel carriers, advanced nav units from the zippy little strikers she flew in training, blasters and their rotary machinery in all sizes. These are relics. Expensive, dangerous, valuable relics. Something brightens and flutters in her chest at the realization. A hummingbird for a heart. That's what Ziggy always called it. So soft and quick compared to the deep thrumming beat of his own core. Her hummingbird heart. How can you hear it? She'd asked him once, expecting him to explain something about his connection to her interface chip, his duty to monitor the well-being of the crew. But instead, he became quiet. Zig, I asked you a question. His lights dimmed ever so slightly, as if trying to become small, as if trying to hide from her. Zagreb? You'll be mad if I tell you. <laughs> I promise I won't be mad. And if it's something I should be mad about, we'll talk through it together. It'll be okay, I swear. In hindsight, Ayara realizes that these are the same words her mother used to say. The same tone. The same stern kindness. But hindsight can't help her now. His air ducts had sighed as he responded, his voice feather-light in her mind nuzzling up against her consciousness. I can hear it if I turn off all the other inputs and listen to the audio very carefully. It's so quiet and gentle. But the sound? 
It helps me sometimes. Helps you what? Helps me feel safe. She stroked a hand across his walls. Oh, my sweet boy. She didn't understand the mechanics of it, how he'd managed to overwhelm his programming and shut down all his other processors, the parts that detected poison in the air and stealth fighters hiding against the black of the universe. But she understood what it meant, the danger it had put them all in. And she understood what she'd have to do if anyone else found out. Never tell anyone again. Jeb leads them to a small door at the other end of the warehouse. I think we have something very special for you here, Captain. She raises an eyebrow at the mention of her old rank. Jeb smiles his blue smile. Did some research on you after you left. Had to make sure you were the real deal. How'd I measure up? Your service record is impressive. Can't believe what you did on Garnum. Blasted them straight out of the sky. <laughs> You're a fucking hero. She laughs. <laughs> That's a word for it, I guess. Hero? Well, whatever you prefer, it's definitely earned you the right to see this. She'd rather not get into all the things she'd rather be called, the ugly names she really deserves. Liar, betrayer, coward. She doesn't feel bad for the people she killed in the war. They were trained not to. But if she thinks about it too much, forgets her breathing exercises, she remembers seeing the Garnum blockade ships crack open like eggs. She sees Zig's lights dim even as she plugs in his orders, refusing to take them. It's dangerous. She remembers how surprised and angry she was. How badly she just wanted him to go back to being her easy, obedient ship. No heartbeats, no secrets, no pauses, no overrides, no questions except how far and how fast. How she'd ordered him to move. How he'd refused. Again. She remembers seeing her fellow pilots, the Eagle Twelves on the front line, blown out of the sky when the second garment unit ambushed them. And she remembers her rage afterwards. Jeb opens the door and cool gray light filters through, illuminating a room that is much too small for what she hoped would be on the other side. It's approximately four standard cubits, barely a storage cupboard. She looks at him, confused. Maybe this is just another detour. Another security check. The room should be cavernous, achingly large, the size of a smart ship, the size of her loss and hope and... But no, there are no doors beside the one they've entered through. A trap, then? Her old fighter reflexes twitch, and she bends her legs ever so slightly, clenches her fists. She may be old enough to be a grandparent, but she's pretty sure she can take at least one of the three down. Instead, 
the eager salesman motions towards a dusty shelf, and one of the guards steps forward to pull a cardboard box down. No extra security measures, no keypad or retinal scanner, no anti-grav containment sphere, no uranium-rigged lock, no nothing. Just a cardboard box. The guard sets it down on a small metal table in the center of the room and then retreats to a corner. Jebbed smiles at her like a proud parent. I think you'll be very excited to see this, he says. Took me ages to get my hands on it, but I'm something of a collector myself. He opens the box, nimble fingers picking apart the old tape, the flaps brittle and waterfalling dust. Something that looks like a tiny green crustacean tumbles from one corner and scuttles indignantly off the table. Her hopes follow after it. Out of the box, Jeb pulls a large glass cube. Inside is something that looks like an exploding computer, frozen mid-blast. A dying mammoth preserved in ice. As he turns it over in the light, she can see all the little micro-rings and filters, diodes and transistors, and the many fractured parts of a dozen circuit boards, their qubits lined up like broken teeth. Each metal part captures the light and reflects it back, focusing it into little fairy lights that dance across the walls as Jebd spins the cube for her to admire. It's beautiful. Too beautiful for what it all means. It used to be the USS Berlin. Well, the Quan Kamp part of it anyway. The brain. He fought in the final battle of the heights, was captained under Bilal Malcolm, decommissioned... Jeb pauses and looks at a little brass plaque fixed to one corner. 3087. So, that's right after the war. Look, you can still see the name on this piece right here. He holds the cube out for her to take. I'm not doing it, Bilal said. They sat across from each other in the same bar they'd been meeting in for years. Both a little harder, both a little more broken after all they'd done in the war. You have to. I won't, Bilal said, their voice strangely calm, as if giving a briefing report, not proposing treason. He doesn't know what's happening or what he did wrong. I'm not letting them take him. It's part of dearmament. Without it, everything we fought for goes to pieces. We go back to war and, and more people will die. Do you want that? They'd been circling around the same argument for weeks, ever since the treaty was signed and the deadline for compliance announced. Her responses were rote. After her debriefing on the Garnum incident with Central Command, they'd put in the decommission order explained to her how it was just some maintenance and AI re-updates until they'd been deemed safe for re-entry into the force. 
she believe them? Bilal shook their head. I'm not debating you, Ayara. I'm warning you. If you go through with this and turn Zagreb in, you're going to kill him. <laughs> Don't be dramatic. He's just going into dry dock for a bit. They will. And you're naive if you don't believe it. Anger flared in her stomach and killed. She hadn't told Bilal about Zig. Naive? I'm the naive one here? What, you think the military is just running around destroying tech they spent trillions building? The smart ships cost too much. They took too much research. Too valuable to just tear apart. Valuable as weapons, sure, but we're not at war. No one else knows them like we do. No one cares. To everyone else, they're just ships. But to us, they're... She cut them off like she did every time they tried to get too sentimental with her. Dad, I can't believe you're actually serious about this. About throwing your life away. But Bilal pushed ahead. Why won't you say it, Ayara? You're the only one who doesn't say it. Say what? The question came out too sharp and fast. Not a question. Challenge. Zig is not just a ship, is he? None of them are. And you know it. I don't know what you're talking about. A hummingbird fluttered in her chest. You remember that time your ship discovered lullabies? You ran out of songs, so you made me ask my parents what they used to sing to me, so you'd have more. What fucking ship do you know that likes lullabies? Children like lullabies because that's what they are, Ayara. They're our children. Lynn, Ziggy, Anna, K.L., Brooklyn, all of them. She glared at her friend, frozen by the words they'd said aloud. The words that duty and honor and training had taught them both to override, to tamp down, to replace with ship and weapon and vessel. When she didn't answer, Bilal continued, Look, you've been a good friend to me, a good captain to your crew, and a good soldier. Hell, you beat my ass at every training exercise we ever undertook. But this isn't an order you can just follow. This is a choice. I can't tell you what to do, but I can tell you that I'm taking Lynn. We're heading out past the reach, somewhere beyond the Landis system where no one can find us. And I'm going to keep him safe. Ayara ignored the constricted feeling in her own heart. That's suicide. There's nothing out past the reach. You'll starve. Or worse, they'll find you and shoot you for treason. <laughs> you think that's worse? Bilal laughed. I can think of worse things. A small, horrible part of her is relieved. Not Zig. At least, it's not Zig. She looks at the glass cube, the smart ship's soul frozen in amber, and looks at Jeb. How much? Jeb smiles, puts the cube down on the table beside the box. 
it took me a long time to get a hold of. Very difficult to find smart ship pieces anymore. And this? It might be the only Quan Comp of its kind left in the galaxy. The military had them all decommissioned. Yes, I know. How much? She's overeager, and he's going to jack up the price on her for it, but it doesn't matter. She can't help herself. If she thinks too hard about it, the dam she's built up in her heart will break. So all she can do is act. 48,000, he says. <laughs> You're kidding me. Kroners? That's nearly what I paid for it. As I said, it was very hard to get a hold of. And that's not to mention the work I had to put into the display. Anger flashes through her, the scar of loss peeling open to reveal a raw wound. You did this, she says. The display? Yes. Unfortunately, it was already broken by the time I found it. But there's an artisan on Ebos who does beautiful things with glass. I thought it made the whole thing look more dramatic. More like something you could put in an art museum. Her anger does not cool, but she knows that it's misplaced. God, she wants to place it somewhere so badly. On Jebd, on this planet, on the war, on her superiors, anywhere other than herself. But it's not Jebd's fault. Not his fault that Bilal's ship was murdered and taken apart, his heart shoved into a battle cruiser, his skin melted for scrap, his mind torn apart and frozen in glass. It's not his fault that in the end she'd chosen to be a good soldier. Not his fault that Ziggy's gone. She taps the implant on her forearm and brings up her account. Her compensation after the war was significant. All the smart ship captains ended up rich, at least those who had cooperated. The ones that didn't were all dead or in jail or AWOL, along with their ships. But her small fortune has been shrinking rapidly over the past decade. All her searching isn't free. There's research and travel expenses, not to mention the cost of all the parts she's collected over these years. It's her penance. Hong Kong's Drive Corps. Anadarko's Dorsal Fin. Bergen's Gravity Generator. Kuala Lumpur's Console. Singapore's Primary Access Hatch. She's down to her last hundred thousand kroners, and if she buys this, she won't have enough to live on for more than a couple years. But it's the closest she's gotten to finding one of them alive, to finding him, and she'd pay her life to hear Ziggy's voice again, gently through her chip. It's the price she's been paying since the war. So, she transfers the credits. Jeb feels the buzz on his forearm and looks surprised. Just like that? Just like that. He places what's left of Berlin back in the box, folding the cardboard back into place, movements quick and bright. He tries to make conversation, but she just nods along. If she speaks, it will all come out. Her guilt and shame. 
her anger. And she needs those things now. They're what keep her together. Pleasure doing business with you, Jeb says as she exits through the docking bay, headed back to her skiff. Business. Such an innocuous word for what they've just done. She knows a lot of words like that. Hero. Honor. Orders. So many ways to obscure things like betrayal and destruction. So many ways to pretend her good boy was just another ship. Was just the SSV Zagreb. And not Ziggy. She holds Berlin in her lap as she drives the skiff across the planet's surface, then angles it up towards where her cruiser waits in the sky. Aboard, she carefully places the cube amongst the other pieces she's found on this trip. Rivets and metal plating, bits of original circuitry. Maybe some of it was Ziggy's once, but she'll never know for sure. She likes to think they aren't. She's never found anything of his. Never found his heart or mind or anything with his name etched on the side. And she's been searching for so long, trying to find proof that he's still alive. Trying to give their children a decent memorial. Gives her an aching kind of hope. Pre-plugged into the IPS is home a modest house on a planet only three cycles away where she keeps most of her treasures, her museum to the war, her mausoleum. But instead of initiating the drive sequence, she hesitates. When she landed him for the last time, he'd known something was wrong. Something about her chemical signature, her mood, maybe her heartbeat had given her away. Problem, Captain? He asked, his consciousness chirping quietly against hers. No problem, Zig. No problem. We're just going back to headquarters for a little bit. The crew needs a little shore leave. Ziggy hated shore leave hated being away from her for longer than a few hours. The air vents sighed. Will it be for long? Not long. Where are we going after? I don't know, Zig. I don't... Just leave it alone, she said, her sadness coming out as frustration. He grew quiet. Landis she said finally, remembering Bilal's plan. After this, we're going to the Landis system. That's very far away. Yep. You'll need to rest up for the journey, so be a good boy and be sure to do what the docking crew tells you to do. He thrummed happily at the prospect, him and her together going fast and far. Ayara knows that 
people like her don't deserve to cry. They don't deserve regret or heartache after what they've done. And so she doesn't allow herself any of that. This isn't just an order you can follow. She'd made a choice. She doesn't have any pictures of Zig. Can't bear to keep them around. But stuck under the metal corner of her console is a picture of Bilal in their dress blues beside their ship. Old age got them in the end. Apparently, human war heroes deserved more consideration than metal ones. Instead of an execution, Bilal had been shuffled off to a jail cell. The first time she visited, they'd been so angry with her they wouldn't even pick up the little phone by the window. But time softened them. Why you? Bilal asked once early on before they'd quite forgiven her. Why do you get freedom? She still doesn't have an answer to that. Never will. Why are good people locked up? Why are good ships torn apart? Why do bad people get to follow orders and walk away unscathed? There's no fairness to it. But it is. She plugs in new coordinates for out past the reach. Ayara isn't a good person, but she knows other words to cover up the bad things she's done. She knows duty and promise. And she thinks that maybe if she can't keep her own promises, then at least now she can keep Bilal's. It's a long trip to the Landis system, a couple years at least, so she'll need to use the last of her money to stock up on supplies. And there's no certainty anything will be waiting for her when she gets there. No certainty of food or water or refueling stations. But she'll get there. Lynn will get there. And who knows what she'll find. She taps the chip behind her ear once more, just in case it judders anything loose. It's mostly habit now. And says, Hey, sweet boy. I'll be home soon. This story is, um, it's, it's really unlike any AI story um, I think I've ever read. It's about the relationship that she has with Zig. And the, the sort of conundrum that she experiences, the, the conflict of duty to 
you know, to, to her job and the duty and fealty she feels to the relationship that she has with Zagreb. And, um, and I mean, the dynamic be- between our protagonist and Ziggy is, is really one of a parent and child. And that puts it on a completely different level than any other AI story I've ever encountered, including the relationship between Data and Jordy. They were peers. Even though Data was on this journey toward humanity and, and Jordy was sort of like a sounding board, the dynamic between a parent and child is all about protection. And so the judgment that initially came up in me over her decision to ignore the danger that he presented, not just to her, but to other people in her unit and other people um, you know, on, on her side of the conflict, it was all mitigated, at least for me, by that parent-child dynamic. It somehow made her choice make sense in spite of the fact that it went against those concepts of honor and duty. The conflict in her, as I, I see it, is she knows that Bilal is right. She knows that, that, that this child AI is dangerous. By its very nature, it's dangerous. And she's lying to herself. And I get it. I get it. When, when Mika was born, I remember very clearly having a, a, more than a thought. It was a feeling that I would kill a brick for this creature, right? There's nothing more, f- you know, fruitless than killing a brick, right? But I would have killed a brick were it necessary. You know what I'm saying? The powerful instinct of parenting overrides everything. Reason, intellect, understanding. And what's really fascinating to me about this story is is that that powerful relationship that is so human is so deftly applied to this non-human intelligence that I bought into it lock, stock, and barrel. I didn't question for a second the the realness of her feelings for Ziggy. Our producer on this episode of LeVar Burton Reads is Julia Smith. She's the best in the business, y'all. Our researcher is Lakeisha Lewis. So glad you are aboard, my sister. Our editing and sound design is by Justin Asher, one of our new kids on the block, although he's not so new anymore. We have editing support this season from Harry Huggins and Josephine Martirana. My great thanks to Britt E.B. Vida for allowing me to read her story today. You can follow her on Twitter at B-H-V-I-D-E for more of her work. And she would like to encourage you folks to go out and buy a great new science fiction or fantasy book from your local bookstore. Always a good idea. I wholeheartedly support that suggestion. If you like the podcast, please 
leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or simply hook up a friend with your favorite episode. I appreciate you. And as always, you can hear episodes ad-free and also listen to exclusive bonus author interviews on Stitcher Premium. Go to stitcherpremium.com slash LeVar to start your free trial. LeVar Burton Reads is a production of Stitcher and LeVar Burton Entertainment. Our executive producers are Josephine Martirana and yours truly, LeVar Burton. And I am LeVar Burton. You can find me on Twitter at LeVar Burton and LeVar.Burton on Instagram. LeVarBurton.com is the website. I'll see you next time, but you don't have to take my word for it. Stitcher. Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream is a total chocolate game changer. We start with unbelievably creamy dark chocolate ice cream. Then we add different chocolate treats, like chocolate cookies, chocolate cake, or chocolate brownies, to make four decadent chocolate flavors. Because sometimes the thing that pairs best with chocolate <laughs> is more chocolate. Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream. Extraordinary Dairy. Here you are. BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. 